right. Good morning, Redeemer Church. Let's pray together before we get started. Heavenly Father, we just say in the words of this song, Alleluia, all we have is Christ. Alleluia, Jesus is our life. Lord, I simply ask this morning that you would quiet the rebellious parts of our hearts or that we would hear the vision that you have for your authority in our lives as we partake as members of your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, it's good to see you all. I know a handful of you quite well. I've had conversations with many of you, but for those who don't know me, my name is Ben Mowell. I'm here with my wife, Sarah, uh, and I'm a lay pastor at the campus in Cedar Falls. And if you're wondering to yourself, are they still meeting? I heard they dissolved. I can assure you that's not the case. Although we don't have a campus staff pastor, we continue to meet every week to study the word, to praise God through music, and observe communion together. To paraphrase a saying often attributed to Mark Twain, the rumors of our demise have been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> a few weeks ago, we paused our series reading through the book of Hebrews, as Glenn mentioned, for the summer, and we're now in a mini-series about belonging, about what it means to be a church, what it means to be a member and to be a leader in the church. As we go, we're building our way from being members of Christ to members of one another, to submitting to authority, to becoming a leader, to the qualifications of pastors and elders. Our hope in this is that we would emerge with a renewed understanding of how God calls each of us to participate in his body, the church. So, now that we're not doing a study of Hebrews anymore, this week's scripture is from Hebrews. So if you were here last week, you heard Stan Yoder talk about the call to make disciples, not just Christians. He talked about the importance of giving our allegiance to Jesus above all else and how we accompany others on this journey to become more like Christ. He explained how we learn to follow Christ by watching others follow him. Stan asked the question, how can I meet with people and accompany them? Which he then answered with a simple model. Spend time together. Have a plan for yourself to become more like Christ. And then show them how they can know Christ. If you missed last week or haven't had a chance to watch that yet, I really encourage you to make the time for it. So now I have the tough task of following on the heels of Stan, not just because he is a gifted teacher, but more importantly, because he has lived a life of practicing what he preaches. Every story he told could be a textbook on how to share the gospel and make disciples. To add to the difficulty, this week's topic is one that makes every one of us bristle. The command to submit ourselves to spiritual authority. This can be a particularly difficult pill to swallow because in our lives we often see authority exercised very poorly. Sinful people who lead in sinful ways, abusing their authority or taking advantage of the people that they're supposed to be protecting. 
But just as Hebrews 13.9 says to not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, 2 Timothy 4 verses 3 and 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If this message leaves your ears itching, or you find that the first response in your heart is to be angry, I would simply ask that you search out these things in Scripture and ask God to reveal what specifically caused that reaction. And also, while today's topic is about submitting to spiritual authority, the next nine sermons will be about the expectations for those spiritual leaders. So last week, Stan mentioned that we as Americans in particular can be offended by the idea of a king and a kingdom, which is especially true this weekend as we celebrate our independence, right? Our independence from what? A king and a kingdom. A tyrant named King George III. In fact, the early heroes of our nation gained renown for refusing to submit to authority. Nowhere was this attitude more clear than in the famous words of Patrick Henry, who reportedly said, give me liberty or give me death. This mindset is woven into the fabric of our society at every level, from the Bill of Rights to our hyper-individualism. We vote authorities in and out of office as a form of self-governance, which is a way of saying that we only answer to ourselves. This is not a remote ideology or, or political thought. If we were to have a conversation for very long, you and I, about the challenges facing the world today, you would find a number of my personal libertarian views coming to the surface, not just with politics, but relationships, work, parenting, and every facet of life. But the call for us as disciples of Jesus is not to give our allegiance to a political party or a nation or a philosophy, but to give our allegiance to him. And when you make Jesus your king, the rules of his kingdom are very different from what we are used to in our everyday lives. Author Donald Craybill highlighted this contrast with a term he used as the title of his book, The Upside-Down Kingdom. This means that the values of God's kingdom are contrary to the values of the world, contrary to the values that we see in commercials or movies or TikTok or the evening news. Today, we're going to examine what living in that upside-down kingdom means for us as the church. So if you've heard me preach before, you may be starting to realize that I like to set up our key passage by stepping back to see the big picture first, by going back to the beginning to see what God has been doing since the beginning of time. So if you'd like, you can turn back to Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, or you can find it on your phone, and just start scanning through the first few chapters. I will highlight several examples that demonstrate a key theme that we can find throughout the entire Bible, which is this. God establishes order in the universe primarily by creating hierarchies of authority and defining the rules of his kingdom. That sounds uncomfortable, but let's get into it. So in Genesis chapter 1, we see example after example of God creating the universe piece by piece, defining names, functions, and attributes of each thing he has made. 
In verses 16 and 18, Genesis 1 says that he made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. In Genesis verses 26 to 28, sorry, chapter 1, God created mankind and then he said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. He then issued this intended purpose as a command saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. In the very order of the universe, God defined hierarchies of authority to achieve his purposes. In fact, he commanded mankind to have dominion over the earth. So if you turn to Genesis 2, we see this continued. God placed man in the garden to work it and keep it, giving him one rule to obey to live in this kingdom. In verses 16 and 17, he said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. So here's another example of God giving a command, giving a structure to define what it's like to live in his kingdom. So let's pause for a moment here and think about what we've just read as being part of a larger story. So if you can remember far enough back to remember English class, you probably had to learn about a plot diagram, which was defined by exposition and rising action and a climax and falling action and resolution, right? Does anybody remember what the key component of the exposition of the story is? It's introducing the key characters. When we learn to write or to tell a story, we learn to do the character development at the beginning so that the reader knows the nature and behavior of each character in the story. A storyteller needs to establish key details and fundamental truths about each person involved. So now we can turn that mindset back to Genesis. If we think about it in these terms, the Bible is really God's autobiography. It follows then that as the author of this story, his story, God would disclose fundamental elements about his nature in the beginning. These aren't just facts, but purposes and motivations that are at the core of who he is. And as we look at how he introduced himself in the first two chapters, we see that God is alive, he's creative, he's vocal, we also see that he is orderly and powerful and authoritative, to name a few traits. We also see that God created mankind in his image to imitate him, to display his attributes to the whole earth. He established a hierarchy in which he revealed himself to us and we were commanded to reveal him to the whole earth. From day one, God has shown himself as the king of the universe and requires our total allegiance to participate in his kingdom. Now, how do God's character and commands about hierarchies, authority, and submission impact humanity? How do they impact the church? What's so upside down about his kingdom? As it turns out, we humans are really good at disobeying God's commands. Since the very beginning, we have been professionals at questioning God's authority, rejecting God's kingship, 
and undermining his kingdom. Rather than embracing the order and hierarchy he established and fulfilling our role as imitators in his image, we've tried to become like God as the ones atop the hierarchy with no one to answer to but ourselves. Now, Genesis doesn't tell us how long Adam and Eve lived in Eden before, with God before they rebelled, but I don't think it could have been more than about 10 seconds. After just the first two chapters of learning about God and his purpose for mankind in the universe, in the next two chapters, the very next two chapters, we read about our horrific penchant for rebellion. So in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, we read about Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. In verse 16 of chapter 3, God prophesied in the curse that humanity would be locked in an internal and perpetual power struggle between men and women, both by abusing authority and usurping authority. And then in chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, Cain brought an offering that was displeasing to God. So God warned him. But rather than submit his pride to that warning through obedience, Cain vented his frustration on the one who was deemed acceptable by murdering his brother Abel. From there, our sin and our rebellion just kept building as all of the Old Testament continued to reveal our rebellious hearts through the innumerable disobediences of Israel and their rulers. From complaining in the desert to Achan stealing and hiding plunder from Jericho and Ai that was supposed to be destroyed, to the nation demanding a king who would go before them and rule over them instead of God, the tale of Israel's rebellion and humanity's rebellion against God's rule and authority is like a broken record. So let's pause here for a minute again to examine the underlying attitudes which create this habitual pattern of going our own way. I would suggest that there are two ways in which we revise the order of the universe in our own heads for our own benefit without even realizing it. But they both stem from the same desire. First, we believe that there is a hierarchy of authority in the world, but that instead of God at the top, we are at the top. This was the sin of the fallen angel Satan, desiring to elevate his name and his throne above the heavens to become like God at the top of the hierarchy. This undertone was even in his seduction of Eve, proposing that if she knew the true nature of good and evil, then God wouldn't be in charge anymore. She could say for herself what was or was not good. This twisting of God's order is the epitome of hypocrisy. Because if we boil it down to a single statement, the thought is this. The hierarchy of the universe is only good if I am at the top. I'll say that again. The hierarchy of the universe is only good if I am at the top. This is the lie of selfishness that we all too willingly believe because it makes us the master of everything, consequently making everyone and everything else subservient to our will and our desires. It makes our happiness paramount to everything else. The second worldview is very different in its reasoning, which says this. 
the universe does not have a hierarchy. Or if it does, it is inherently bad. This is the lie of egalitarianism that we all too willingly believe because it achieves the same effect. But it sounds less selfish and more friendly toward others. This is the lie that we as a culture have swallowed hook, line, and sinker. It is the lie which says that there is nothing inherently different between men and women. The lie that there is no intended structure for love, intimacy, or marriage. The lie that there are no categories or distinctions or boundaries which are not man-made. The lie which says that authority can only be a result of a coercive power imbalance. Those might be lies that we can all easily spot and agree are contrary to God's order, but what about a few lies that land a little bit closer to home? The lie that no one can tell you what to do. The lie that we don't have to obey commands we don't agree with. The lie that we don't need to submit ourselves to anyone. The ultimate outcome of both of these mindsets is that whether there is a hierarchy and we're at the top, or there is no hierarchy, we end up worshiping ourselves. Whatever we want, whatever we say is good, whatever benefits us is the only good in the universe. Friends, this is the essence of sinfulness. This is the sinful nature that we've inherited and that we will pass on to the next generation. This is our natural state in which we depose God from his throne and work to actively disassemble his kingdom. We shirk the obligations of our role in his hierarchy while trying to simultaneously reap the benefits. So maybe after hearing all that, you're asking yourself, why did God create these hierarchies and call them good? The answer to that question contains two significant components. The first, this is just reality. God is the creator. We're the created. He's the potter. We're the clay. That fact is true whether we recognize it or not. But acknowledging this hierarchy is at the core of accepting God as our king and finding our place in his kingdom. The second component is that authority and submission are inherent to God's nature. We see this most clearly exhibited by the interactions between the persons of the Trinity. So we can see from Scripture in John chapter 5, verses 19 to 23, that the Father has authority over the Son. This is Jesus' teaching. It says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show them, show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So this plays out even further in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before Jesus went to the cross, he surrendered himself to the will of the Father. Matthew 26 tells us this in verses 38 and 39. 
Jesus said to them, his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The Apostle Paul echoed this exact point in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul wrote, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then, as a result of this, the Father gave Jesus all authority. We see this again in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. This was part of what Stan preached on. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And again, we see in John chapter 14, Jesus asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit to believers as a helper. So the whole Trinity itself exhibits these roles of authority and submission to one another. So let's summarize this point by answering the question, how did Jesus exercise his authority? Remember, Jesus was not just a perfect and sinless man. He was the living God. He is the living God. If anyone had the authority to demand obedience, Jesus did. And if anyone had the integrity to judge disobedience, Jesus did. But that's not what he did. Instead, Jesus laid down his rights, submitting himself to the most horrific injustice in the history of the world. The one called faithful and true, being betrayed, abandoned, and denied by his friends. The incarnate God being called a blasphemer. The living word who spoke the universe into existence remaining silent in the face of false accusations. The one who created man in his own image, being beaten beyond human likeness. The lion of Judah becoming the lamb who was slain. The king of the universe mocked as the king of the Jews. The living God laid in a tomb as a lifeless corpse. What a tragedy. But in his upside-down kingdom, this most horrific injustice perpetrated on Jesus is actually his crowning glory. In Revelation 5, verses 6 through 10, the elders of heaven are singing a song to the lamb who was slain, and they say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign 
on the earth. Did you catch that? The heavenly chorus declares that Jesus is worthy not because of his authority, but because he gave up his authority for us and submitted himself to death. The dark irony of our sinful pride is that we don't become like God by trying to attain his status, by trying to elevate ourselves. We become like God through humble service. That's the God that we serve. So what does this mean for us? Well, if Jesus is our teacher and we are his disciples, then we are called to follow his example. If Jesus could possess all authority and lay it down to submit to the Father for our benefit, how much more are we called to lay down what little authority we have and submit? If the king of the kingdom dies for his subjects, how can we not also die for one another? I just want to make this point clear. We don't submit ourselves to authority because it's fun, because we like to do it. We submit because Jesus did. Being a subject of God's kingdom means obeying many commands that we don't like. But obedience is the act of submitting our will to him and acknowledging his rightful position in the hierarchy. Jesus explicitly described this upside-down model of leadership in his kingdom to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. That's a bold statement. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Now we know that Peter got this message because he later wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Quite frankly, we are doing this sermon series in part because we have recognized the ways that we as a pastoral team have failed to exemplify this humble, servant-hearted leadership. This is something that we have grieved over, 
repented of, and desire to continue to become more like Christ in this way. God also commands his shepherds to lead the church. This was not an idea contrived by leaders trying to seize control, but rather it is intended to be a beautiful reflection to the watching world of how Christ submits himself to the Father. This is not a teaching brought to elevate the elders, but because God charges us to teach his commandments to his people. That is clear in the text this morning of Hebrews 13, that leaders are to teach the word and keep watch over your souls. In the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Philip Melanchthon wrote, We neither obey the law nor can obey it before we have been reconciled to God, justified, and then reborn. What does that tell us? It tells us that the world embraces rebellion. The world understands being offended by a bad boss and filing a complaint. It also tells us that only those who have experienced the blessing of Christ's submission to humiliation and death are capable of submitting themselves to less than ideal circumstances. Anyone can refuse to submit themselves to authority, but disciples of Christ are called to live a different life. Disciples follow a leader that they believe in and want to be like. That's why we follow Christ. But in our case, this is not a question of whether or not the teacher is fallible. Obviously, every leader in every church ever will make mistakes. The question for us is, what is the posture of our hearts? Are we, are we looking for ways to submit ourselves to spiritual authority in obedience to Christ? Or are we looking for ways to excuse ourselves from obedience? Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? If I'm a student and I believe that I know more than my teacher or can do better than my teacher, I chose the wrong teacher, or I have to deal with an attitude of pride. Being part of the church, the body of Christ, is not like being in a club or an organization. We can't show up when we feel like it or leave when we get bored. It isn't a buffet or an a la carte menu where we can take what we like and leave the rest. Being part of the church is a command. It's a lifestyle. And it's an action. It's acknowledging God is our king. And if we desire to be a part of his kingdom, we have to submit ourselves to his commands and the authorities he has given to us. That's part of the reason that the author of Hebrews wrote in verses 12 and 13 of our text today. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So as we close, I'd like to ask the question, what does it mean to go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured? If we look at the verses here in Hebrews 13, there are two sets of actions, those of leaders and those of the rest of the church. Let's examine how those two sets together 
how we can apply them with the knowledge of the hierarchy of God's kingdom in our walk together. So first, what does it say that leaders do? They have faith that's worth imitating. They speak the word of God. They keep watch over your souls. Ultimately, they're going to have to give an account for how they led. And they also are called to lead with joy. There's a saying that we have here, you've probably heard if you've been around for very long. We say being a leader means being the first to die. That is the commitment of the pastoral team to you, that we seek to lead by following in the footsteps of Christ, submitting ourselves to him and to you as servants, not overlords. We want our own lives to be examples of how we are making God our king in submitting to his authority in all things. What are the rest of us to do? These verses describe a few things. So first, remember your leaders. Consider the outcome of, the, of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Do not be led away by strange teaching. Seek the city that is to come. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, which it says is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good. Share what you have. Obey your leaders Submit to them. Let them lead with joy, which you could say is don't make yourself a burden. And lastly, pray for them. I want to close here, bringing this home. If we look back over the last year, none of us would have predicted that this is where we would be today, nor would we have wished for it. A year ago, this campus had three staff pastors and three lay pastors. Today, there's one of each. Each of these men has just been through one of the most grueling experiences of their lives, and I can assure you that they didn't do it out of a desire for power or to lord their authority over anyone, but out of obedience to God's call on their lives and out of love for this church. So if you haven't prayed for them recently, as Hebrews 13 says to do, or ask them how they're doing, I would encourage you to start today by connecting with them after the service. I know it's easy to feel hurt by what has happened, to distrust authorities and their motives, but now more than ever, this body and these leaders need each of you, each of us, to lay down our rights, submit ourselves to Christ, and to serve in the capacity that he has given each of us. I can say with confidence that if you earnestly seek to honor God in this way, he will give you the ability to do it with joy. So I'd like to invite the response team up, um, and I want to leave you with two questions. Two questions that you can ask God as we reflect and respond together as a church. Those questions are this. Number one, God, in what ways are you calling me to submit myself to authority and to be a disciple in this church? So that's inward looking. That's asking God, what does he want me to do to be a disciple? And the second question is outward looking. And this echoes what Stan said last week. 
Ask God, who do you want me to begin to teach how to become a follower of Jesus? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day that you've given us to gather together, to be joined as one, to participate as part of your body. Lord, I know this is a hard teaching because it's hard for me, because I don't want to submit to anyone. So God, I just ask that your spirit would empower us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to put to death the attitudes that would cause us to go our own way. And instead, Lord, that you, that you would give us the authority to submit ourselves to Christ and to one another. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.